Well, again, we are so grateful that you're here and thankful that you've brought the church into these rooms, as Kaylee has told you, as Nathan's told you, and I just stand with them and telling you that once again. We take it as no small thing that you would uh, be here, that you would show up, that you would bring yourself and all that you are into uh, these rooms in which we've gathered. And to be reminded that it's for a purpose that we gather to worship God for who he is and what he's done. And as you've heard from Kaylee today, that we worship him as a God who is worthy, a God who is worth more, a surpassing worth than anything else that we can think or even imagine. That's God. And he has not just invited us into his presence. He's invited us into his provision, into the kingdom that is on earth right now as it is in heaven. What a gift. What an amazing gift it is. This is epiphany season. I reminded you of that last week. And it's epiphany, and I love this. During this season, I bought myself a little notebook that every day I'm looking for an epiphany from God. Something that's been there all along, but I've missed it because I wasn't looking for it and I've been praying differently every day that he would show me, that he would let me see how he's working in real time on earth as it is in heaven. And it's changed some things for me. I've seen the world a little differently over these weeks, these days. And up until Ash Wednesday, this season of Epiphany reminds us of what we already know. That's the wonderful thing about an Epiphany. An Epiphany is when some trigger, something triggers in you something that you knew you knew, but you just weren't looking for it. And in the liturgical calendar that the church follows to be able to track the life of Christ as he lived on earth, Epiphany is when we're reminded that the Savior was revealed to the world and is still being revealed to the world. And we, as the church, are the revelators. We're the revelators. We're the image bearers, the ones who reveal that truth of who Jesus is to the world. That's epiphany for us. I had an epiphany last Sunday afternoon. I'm still trying to get it together up here. Last Sunday afternoon, Connie and I went to see uh, a movie, The Greatest Showman. And, yeah, I know some people love this movie and some people hate this movie. You know, I, I love the movie. And, and, uh, but I'd heard about the movie from my 15-year-old granddaughter, Madeline, who loved the movie. And things that Madeline loves, I love, whatever it is. And so we went to the movies and we grabbed Madeline and Annabelle, two of our granddaughters, and we went to the movies last Sunday afternoon. And so we get our tickets and then Madeline and I, Madeline's 15 and Madeline and I are standing in the, in the line, to, uh, the concession line to get some popcorn and, and stuff like that. And so we're standing in that line, we get to the front of the line and I order, you know, I'm barely paying attention to what the guy behind the counter is saying because I'm so fascinated with Madeline and I'm listening to everything Madeline's telling me. And so I'm, we're talking and she's telling me stuff and I'm listening to her and the guy says, do you want a large popcorn? And I forgot what that was. And I said, yeah, large. And, and then he said, do you want a large Coke? And I said, yeah, because I forgot what that was too. And so I had to take out an, a second mortgage on the house, but... Um, <laughs> But, you know, I, so I've got, I've got this, all this stuff, you know, there. And so Madeline takes the big vat of popcorn that we get. And I take, and I'm taking hold of the Coke, the, the Coca-Cola that, that is in the largest cup I've ever seen in my life. 
And because I was paying attention to her and what was going on around her, including the fact that there was a, a long line of people waiting to get refreshments and, and including some high school teenage boys who were really interested in my conversation with Madeline for some reason, and I'm paying attention to them, and, and I wasn't paying attention to the Coke cup, and so I reached out and I took hold of the Coke cup, and I'll just, here's a life lesson for you. Don't ever pick up a large Coke cup by the top of the cup. Yeah, that happened to me, because uh, when I picked up that Coke cup, the Coke cup smashed, and the Coke began to fall, and Madeline, who has a vat of popcorn, responds, reacts to it, and I think she thought she would catch it or something. And so she reaches, she starts moving toward the Coke cup. And so the whole vat of popcorn and the Coke and everything goes down onto the floor. And something happened to me, an epiphany happened to me uh, in that moment because I, my brain slowed down. Have you ever had those situations where you think everything just starts moving in real slow motion? Well, that happened to me. Everything just slowed down. And all of a sudden, I'm reaching for the Coke cup, but it's very slow. And I see the Coke cup going down. I see the popcorn. And then I see it pool together on the floor and thinking about the unique coloration that's going on. <laughs> with this brown liquid, and I think, what's in Coke anyway that makes that <laughs> color like that in the fizz, and then the popcorn and goes down on the, on the floor, and I see it spreading out, I think, that's golden, it's yellow. What is that stuff they call butter because it's not congealing, it's kind of spreading out. And I'm thinking all that, at the same time, I'm, I'm thinking, Madeline's 15 years old, you know, she's with her grandfather in front of a whole group of people who just watched me do a very foolish thing. She'll never go anywhere with me again. You know, and I'm thinking of that, and then I'm thinking about these two boys that are in line behind us who are thinking this is about the funniest thing they've ever encountered in their life, and they're pointing it out to other people in the line of what's going on here. I'm thinking about that. And, and all this is happening in very slow motion in what was literally just a couple of seconds. And I turned to the guy behind the counter, maybe just for some help. I didn't know what I needed in the moment. And so I turned to him and he said, aren't you one of those pastors over at Northland <laughs> Church? And I said, no, no, I, I'm at First Baptist Church. Uh, I'm David Youth, how you doing? I introduced myself and I told him I was your pastor and, and uh, it was one of your prouder moments as a church. And, and so I said, yes, I am. And so, you know, but then to my great delight and the epiphany for me was I turned to Madeline and you know what she's doing? She's laughing harder than anyone else. And I was like, oh, thank goodness, you know. She's okay, she's okay, because that's all I cared about in the moment. I didn't care about the rest of the stuff. You know, they, so it was an epiphany, epiphany for me, and, and for the rest of the day, I thought about that phenomenon that happens when things slow down, 
You know, I've heard people describe this, like in having accidents uh, in their cars and saying that, that everything just seemed to slow way down when, when, the, when the, a crash seems imminent. And other life and tragic situations and joyful situations where life just, everything just slows down. It got me curious about it, and I started looking around, you know, uh, trying to find out information on it. There's, there's actually a phenomenon that takes place. There's a guy that just wrote a book uh, in the last couple of months, and I read it this week. By, it's by Daniel Pink. It's called When, and it's The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. JT, you don't have to write it down. I'll make sure you get a copy. But it, I read this, and, and actually our brains do accommodate these kinds of events in our lives and, and, it, and it adapts to these things that would normally just be lapses in our brain that are not recorded, but our brain actually goes into a different mode in order to take in these kind of significant events because we have decided somewhere else in our brain that they are significant events. And so aren't you curious as to how you decide what are significant events in your life? Well, I'll tell you, you don't have to read the book. Here's how you decide. You decide, it, you decide what is a significant event by the thing that's associated with that event that is of most value to you, that is of most worth to you. Because you know, there's another phenomenon that happens, an epiphany, if you will, that happens in our life. And, and it's this, that I don't know if you've noticed, but as I get older, it seems like things just move faster all the time. You know, there are people I talk to and I'll say, you know, didn't I just talk to you a couple of days ago? That, no, that was a month ago. And they say, where does the time go? Where does the time go? Well, it's a phenomenon, again, that our brain chooses uh, to adapt to the thing that we put the most worth upon or the most value toward, and then our brains work that way. Now, I tell you all that, not just because it's an epiphany to me, I like learning about stuff like that, but it's an epiphany to me because it's helped me understand what's going on in Philippians chapter 3 when Paul writes what he writes, this letter to the church. And last week, we covered what we, we called the resume kind of uh, attributes that Paul ascribed to himself, the, the things that he had both inherited and the things that he had learned and established for himself, things that would look good on a resume, contrasted with things that, look, that you, wanna, you want somebody to say about you in your eulogy. They're two different th kinds of values, aren't they? But they both have to do with an ending, and Paul knows that an ending is coming for him and it's imminent. And it's changed, it changes very drastically when he comes to this place in Philippians where he has finished these first six verses that these are all, this is part of a long parenthesis in this letter. In the first six verses, Paul says them with a great deal of force and anger, directness and frustration of watch out for the dog. Watch out for the evildoers, those who would try to tell you that your religion and the external focus of that religion is more important than, what, than the hard work 
of interior soul work, that is discipleship, of following closely after Jesus. And then I think, and I, I don't know this for sure, and I've looked all week for a commentary that would back me up on this. So at this point, I'm just out on my own here. But I think that what happens from verse six to verse seven is Paul has this epiphany that slows him down and everything begins to move in slow motion in these next verses. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter three, verse seven. You can also read this in the worship guide. It'll be on the screens. We just wanna be sure you read along so you know that I'm not making this stuff up. And so Paul writes this to the church there and us, and I, I wanna think, that these are words he writes very slowly and deliberately, carefully. And when you see the nature of them, I think you'll understand why I came to this conclusion. But whatever gain I had, Paul had to be doing some reflection at this point. Whatever gain I had, remember his accounting system has flipped here. He's moved everything that was in the gain column to the loss column and vice versa. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything. What's he mean by everything? He means everything. Everything he inherited, everything that had been given to him, everything that he had worked hard to accomplish for himself, every accolade he had ever received from the other Pharisees, every rebuke he had ever received from those he was persecuting, everything. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing, knowing. This word in the Greek is gnosis, it's scientific, it's not subjective. Paul is saying, this is not a feeling I have. I know this. This is a truth that I have staked my life on. The truth, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is a radical statement for him to make to a church, a Roman colony, that they're greeting to each other on the street would have been Caesar is Lord. And if they didn't have that greeting, they could suffer greatly for saying that. And Paul is writing specifically these words, Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Our translators have toned this word down significantly from the word Paul used. In the Greek, in the original language that it's written, it's skubalon, skubalon. It means dung. Sorry to be so graphic in church, but it's, you can't get the feel for what he's talking about. I count it all as dung. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, to be found in him. If you look into the meaning of that, it means if you're looking for me, Find Jesus, and I'll be there. If you want to find me, find Jesus. That's where you'll find me. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
the law, the righteousness that he's described, that even if he kept all of the law, it still would not be enough or good enough. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I love what Francis Chan says about this particular line of scripture, that he says, it's not just as if I have never sinned that Paul is describing here, but it's as if I had always obeyed. Not just that I haven't sinned, but I've always obeyed. That's the righteousness that he's describing. It depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings because like him, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, any means possible, meaning whatever I lose, it's worth it, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so when you take that word of the Lord given through the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, to the church at Northland, and keep in mind that the first six verses of this Philippians chapter 3 represent who, who he was as Saul of Tarsus. But in verse 7, he moves into his identity of Paul, the doulos, the bondservant of Christ. It's a new identity that he has taken on. And when you read those verses, I think it leads to the biggest question we'll ever ask ourselves, not the deepest question, you know, we've got a song about that, the deepest question is who is God? But the biggest question is the one we're pondering today. What's the most valuable or worthy thing in your life? What's the thing that you have ascribed the most value to in your life? To answer that question, I think, starts with another question, and it is, what have you exchanged for your life? And in fact, I want to give you three things here. If you were right, if you were taking notes, this would be point number one, the great exchange. As Paul begins to list the things that he's accomplished and, to, and that it, they amount to nothing, then Paul then makes this flip in the ledger sheet and describes this one thing that matters once, that matters the most. This is one of the most definitive statements that Paul makes about knowing Christ anywhere other than maybe Romans 8. This is a place where he describes it with the most passion. And he reminds us of all the things that he has exchanged for this. And so he gets this, he, he writes it again to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a glorious exchange this is. The one who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become not just have, but we become this. We don't just carry it around in our briefcase. We become this. 
This is who we are now. We are righteous in God. Big deal. It's a big exchange that you make. Now think about the things that we make exchanges for all the time. I had a big exchange not long ago. In fact, um, and the Shaw family's here. I'm going to use your husband, Lisa, in an, in an example here. So uh, a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, Connie and I were fly, flying back to Orlando, and we had to transfer planes at JFK, and it was in that time when the weather was so bad, and planes were coming and going. And Mike Shaw, who's part of our congregation, and uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Mike. Mike also teaches our Dulos group on Tuesday mornings at 6 a.m. for high school students. Makes him a hero to me. Uh, and he is also my neighbor. And uh, Mike is a jet blue pilot. And so we're, uh, Connie and I have this really short window to get from one terminal to the other. We get to the place where we're to board our flight. And... We always fly JetBlue, and so should you. Uh, <laughs> um, so we get to our, our, our gate, and we're, we get there just as they're starting to board the plane. And we're a little frazzled, you know, we're a little weary. And, and around the way comes Mike Shaw, dressed in his captain's uniform. And he walks up, you know, and says, hey, neighbor, headed home, so am I. And we have this little chit-chat, you know, and then we make our way onto the plane. And Connie and I make our way to the back of the plane. We had, there was about a 30-minute window to get out of the airport. This is the last flight to Orlando that day. Mike's been flying for about eight days because of all the weather things, and they needed all the pilots they could get in, out, in and out of New York. And so we, we just say goodbye to him and go back to our seats, and we get back to the back of the plane because uh, the plane was supposed to be full coming to Orlando. We're in the back of the plane, and we're back there, and we're arguing over who's going to sit in the middle. And, I'm just kidding. We didn't argue. Uh, we just talked about it uh, spiritedly. And, uh, you know, and so uh, I'm sitting in the middle, and... and uh, <laughs> You know, and I'm still a little bitter about it, but um, so we're, we're uh, waiting, you know, and, and a few minutes later, we're sitting back there and, and uh, the people, you know, it's really packed in. Well, here comes Mike down the, down the plane in his captain's uniform and he just looks at us and not smiling, not anything, no greeting. He just says, do you have any bags? And I said, yes, yes, sir. Uh, one, and he says, get your bag and follow me. And the people around us are looking at us like, dude, you're getting kicked off the plane. What'd you do, you know? And so, because, I mean, the captain's back there. And so Mike, you know, he, he just motions for us, and he starts out back up there. Well, we move up, and as we're moving up to the front of the plane, Mike says, you know, you can sit anywhere here you'd like. The whole exit row is empty. And Mike just puts us right in the exit row. And then he sits down in another seat in the exit row. And we get to ride home together with Mike, someone I love. And just, and you know, and, and it was an amazing thing. So that's an exchange. So think about this for a minute. First of all, would it have been foolish for me to sit in my seats in the back? And when he comes back there just to say, you know, he says, follow me. And I'm like, you know, I bought these seats. You know, I paid for myself, you know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm settled in. I mean, you know, I'm, I got my bag up there. I mean, you know, it's not that far. I mean, 
I'll just stay back here. Would that have made any sense? No. I mean, because I had something far greater waiting for me. I didn't even know what it was, but you know what I knew? I knew Mike. And I knew that whatever Mike was going to do for me in that moment, it was going to be a good thing. If Mike was saying, follow me because he was getting off the plane, I would want to get off the plane. <laughs> because he would know something I don't know about that. I would follow Mike off the plane and on to another airline if that's what he chose to do. But Mike had an exchange for me, and it was a great exchange. You get the point, right? It's pretty obvious that you, we've been offered an upgrade, not just an upgrade, but the most significant upgrade we can ever imagine. We've been offered this exchange from the place that maybe we're comfortable, maybe we even think we earned, into something that is far, far better for us. We've been offered that exchange. It's a great and grand exchange. And today, the big question you've got to ask is, so if you were offered the exchange, what keeps you from receiving it? Well, the way you answer that question will be how you determine assigning value to things. So Jesus said it this way in Matthew 16. He said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What Jesus is asking here is how are you going to assign value? How do you possibly put worth on your soul? What is your soul worth to you? What is anything else in your life worth? To you? How do you assign value? Well, I read this and I started thinking about what are the, some of the things that are of great value to me? And I'll show you one of them right here. This is one of my most valued possessions. It's a Taylor K-22. I could really nerd out on telling you all the reasons that this is an amazing guitar. You know, and I could even tell you it's worth a little bit of money. You know, but it's worth far more than that to me because I didn't buy this guitar. I was given this guitar by my son-in-law's father just as a gift, a random gift who has since gone to heaven. And so every time I pick that guitar up, there's some slowing down that occurs in me every time because of the value that I've assigned to that guitar. You get the point? Matt Hurd has really rubbed off on me. <laughs> and I've got some other props. So this flag in a little cheap wooden box, about 15 bucks, you can buy one of these. I've had this for about 10 years. I'll tell you where it came from. It came from Colonel Wayne Straw, who flew for some time. He's an F-15 pilot in the airport, Air Force. And he flew 
combat mission over Afghanistan and kept this flag tucked between the seat uh, in his F-15. And he would often gather with other men and women online and worship with us, particularly at, at, the, at bigger services in the year, and they still do some. And one day Wayne came, was in town, he came and he gave me this and he told me this story and he said, I want to give you this because I know this congregation prays for men and women in the armed forces and I want to give you this. I keep this in my office and every time I look at it, my mind slows down and my prayers change and my perspective changes. This is not a perfect country we live in. There's a lot of work to do, but there's a lot of people doing that work. And this flag reminds me of that. It's a worth, it's a value that I've ascribed to it. It's worth far more than what this is just worth in its condition there. You know, I'm not a big time guy. I don't pay a lot of attention to time, much to the chagrin of my family and friends. I don't even wear a watch. But I have this pocket watch that I rarely look at except just to feel it in my pocket. It's a watch that my wife gave me when we were engaged. And so I'm sure she didn't pay more than about $50 for this watch. And, but to me, can you imagine, you probably can't imagine what it's worth to me. I've had it 45 years. It's worth a lot. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't buy it from me for anything. It has that kind of value. Because to whom the value goes is not to the object, not to that object, not to that object, but to the relationship that's associated with each of those things. That's how we are to determine value in our life, according to the relationship. And so when Paul is writing these words, describing his relationship to Jesus, that he is known and wants to be known by Jesus, he is ascribing value to the object of that relationship, the object of that worth, the object Christ himself, which leads us to the third one, the big decision we have to make. So if you think about the things that matter most in your life, the things that maybe you've made exchanges in your life for, the things that you have determined have value for different reasons, then there's a big decision that we make every single day, and that is what will I value today the most? Because you can say, I want to have these eulogy virtues in my life, but remember, people don't change because they decide to change. If that was true, then New Year's resolutions would always work all the way to December, right? People change, as I told you last week, because they elevate what they love. As St. Augustine said, eventually you will become what you love the most. And so the big decision is, what do you love the most? And what will you love the most today? 
And I could go through a litany of things that are possibilities, but really only you can make that decision. Only you know in your heart of hearts what that is, what you love the most. And so with that, let me just give you this, that you were designed to love. Because we are followers, we are to be imitators of Christ, and Scripture is very clear that God's main attribute, his, his overwhelming quality is love. Paul said these three things will remain, faith, hope, love. But there's one greater, one of those is greater than anything else. The greatest of these is love. And so you were wired from the beginning to love and to give love, to receive love. Jesus said that it's more blessed to give than receive. And that's been wired into us as well. And so it stands to reason that the more you give away, the more love you can give, the more love you can distribute into the world, then the larger you become as a person, as a, as a part of this community. The more you give away, the larger you become when it comes to love. Which leads me to this, this piggy bank. So this is not my piggy bank. Uh, this piggy bank belongs to, I'm, I'm hesitating, but I'm going to say, this belongs to somebody actually in the room. Uh, I got this idea the other day. So Nathan Clark and I, Nathan who did the welcome and welcomed you today, Nathan wears red pants every day of his life. I've come to really admire that about him and, and many other things. But Nathan, uh, the other day, Nathan was recording the digging in video, he and I go back and forth in, record, in uh, recording these videos that small groups here use in their studies together each week. And this week, last on Thursday, Nathan was recording the video and he was using this piggy bank as a prop in the video. This piggy bank belongs to his daughter, Harper. Before it belonged to Harper, it belonged to his daughter, Arden. I hope it's okay that I'm telling this. Uh, who broke Harper's piggy bank and she gave Harper her piggy bank because she broke her piggy bank. And so this is Harper's piggy bank. And so Nathan was using this prop and you'll see it in the video if you use it this week, using this in a different way. But I want you to think for just for a moment. So what's this worth? What's this piggy bank worth? You know, it may be worth, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 bucks. But, and there's not, not a lot of money in it, and so that doesn't increase its worth. But would you not agree with me that the more money that's in here, the more this is worth, right? And the more cash that's in here, the more important this becomes, right? And I would want you to know that Harper is in the room this morning, so she's hearing all this. And so I'm wondering... If any of you, would you have any cash with you? Anybody, you got some cash? Yeah, uh, would you wanna just a dollar? I mean, would you wanna just put a dollar? Oh, there's some cash, there's some cash, there we go. 
Okay, now, do you feel a little larger as a result of giving to Harper? You have to say yes, because I'm standing right here. Yeah, of course you do. Yes, yes. And here's a hit, and look at this. It's a five. Okay, so look at this. This just got even more valuable, right? This became even more valuable. And look at, this is a 10. This is a 10. You know, Sam, we need to start taking offerings this way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sam's got his American Express card. He's going <laughs> to. So you see, now I could, I could continue. I, man, I'm, I'm going to watch out. New way of doing the offering, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, brother. So don't you, oh my goodness, he's throwing down. Thank you, look at this, he upped it, he upped it way up. Thank you, brother. So I'm gonna stop right there, because uh, otherwise I'll just go on TV and have my own show doing this, but. But I, I, I share this with you because here's the deal. You know what just happened right over here in this little section of the room with us? We all came together in a different way, didn't we? We came together not for ourselves, not because this is my piggy bank and I'm saying, hey, would you, can you give me a 20? You know, we came together because this is Harper's. And as a community, we just did something amazing for Harper. And we got larger as a result. I feel a bond with you guys. Now, this is gonna be my favorite section from now on. You know, I'm just kidding, I love you guys just as much because we all are in this together. But with this, we get larger as we give. We give larger. You know, even, even in the way that, you know, our community works together. And this is actually one of my favorite sections in, in, the, in the whole, yeah, in the 11 o'clock service. You know, because I watch these guys in, in different times, in different ways when they gather here and worship with us. And you want to see some of the most significant worship and, and expression that happens. It happens over here in this section. I mean, I love these guys. But it's the thing that we do together. We were wired to love this way. And when we love this way, we come together in a way that we can't do individually and by ourselves. We just can't. Because no matter how fun it is for me to give, and God loves a cheerful giver, the Bible says, but no matter how many ways I do that by myself, and I'm not saying we do our giving in public uh, for the sake of getting benefit from that, but when we come together around even something that simple, that, mundane, that seemingly mundane, Think about the difference that makes. So how will we use this? How do we use this kind of understanding of how we ascribe value? How we answer this question in our life? Well, let me give you a, a thought and, and in just the way that maybe you think about your own ending. You know, we are, again, I learned this from Daniel Pink this week in his book that we are wired in ourselves and we fight it, many of us, our whole life. We are, we are wired to begin with the end in mind. You know, I think that's a Stephen Covey principle, but we really were wired to think that way, to begin with the end in mind and then we fight that in different ways and habits and da da da. And you'll have to read the book to see his point. But one of the things that I was intrigued in reading that book this week that is, is a section where he describes Pixar movies. You know, Pixar movies, you've seen many of them. And he, and he has a quote in there that every Pixar movie, 
has its protagonist achieving the goal he wants only to realize it's not what the protagonist needs. And so this leads in every one of the Pixar movies for something to happen. Typically, this leads the protagonist to let go of what he wants. A house, the piston cup, Andy, if you're familiar with these movies, to get what he needs, a true yet unlikely companion, real friends, a lifetime together with friends. And, and, and uh, Pink makes this point that this is an emotional complexity that turns out to be central to how we have been designed, how we've been wired. Because you know what we want more than we want something to just end happy? We want things to end with significance. You know, every single person in this room, if you've thought about it at all, you want at the end of your life to have mattered that you were here, right? You want to live a life of significance. And Daniel Pink makes the observation from research that the way that happens in people is not that they just live happy lives, but they live what he calls poignant lives. Lives that have this blending of taking in both the good and the bad, the happy and the sad, and realizing that all those things come together in a way that make our lives significant because if it's poignant, there's a significance to it as well. Which takes me back to Philippians chapter three. I think Paul here, looking toward the ending, is laying down all the things that at one time were so valuable to him and picking up a cross Picking up his cross, as Jesus said. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back out here. And as they sing this song that reminds us of this, that only we as Christians can sing about and think about something that was an instrument of death in the cross and see that as something that's wonderful because of what it means for us in living our life. And to move us into this, I'm going to ask you to just take in these words, to just listen to these words. But would you stand as I read these words from a man, another apostle, Peter, who had a poignant epiphany near the end of his life, and he, and he described it with these words in 1 Peter chapter 1. Kaylee began us in 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll go to this toward our ending here. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith, your hope is in God.